Autism One Radio listeners, and welcome to our show, the Parent and Physician Partnership for Healing Our Children. On each episode, we've discussed a specific topic related to overall intervention for neuroimmune disorders and provided an update on my son Jake's recovery from autistic symptoms under the care of Dr. Kendall Stewart. Today's topic is vision therapy, and we are very excited to have our first guest, Dr. Mary McMains from Spring, Texas. Before I introduce Dr. McMains, um, I just want to say um, an update on my son Jake because we had an unexpected visit this week to uh, Dr. Stewart's office. Jake has been making pretty good progress, as most of you know, on past shows, and um, we've ha- seen just some just incredible gains um, with his cognitive function and his spelling and his artwork. But on Monday of this week, the school nurse called and said that Jake had some ticks and uh, it looked like a seizure. So. Uh, of course, we were very concerned and brought him in to see Dr. Stewart. And um, so I'm going to uh, now introduce Dr. Stewart, and we're going to talk briefly about uh, Jake's uh, week, which was a sure. little difficult for us, and then uh, we'll introduce Dr. McMains. So uh, hello, Dr. Stewart. Hi, how are you today? Very well, I can't say very good because um, it's I'm still in the midst of this pandas, but it's getting better. Right. Well, what I would tell you... Um, there's been a couple of things that have been really challenging for us lately, and I'm sure that a lot of the listeners will have that uh, same experience. Um, we've been dealing with this swine flu lately that's been a big issue for most of us, and uh, I also found out that most people don't really understand um, the difference between a pandemic flu and a, a seasonal flu, and you know, many people kind of view it as the same. And I'd also tell you that I kind of... Uh, I'm disappointed by uh, some of our government agencies at not pointing out the differences so that people would be aware of it. Um, using the uh, testing that we use in our office, it's very clear to us that um, the difference between a pandemic flu like an H1N1 is actually based in the N1 designation on the flu. That N1 designation is for uh, uh, a substance called a neuraminidase, and the N1 flus uh, throughout history have been very uh, rare and the fact that we haven't had a lot of experience with them. And uh, in fact, in the last 100 years, we can only document about four in one variants that uh, tended to give us trouble, all the way back to the Spanish flu, um, and then through uh, a little small outbreak in 1978, and then the avian flu that hit Hong Kong in the early part of this decade. In um, one flus uh, have the ability to attack the nervous system. and even though they do give you flu-type symptoms, uh, low-grade fevers usually, or excuse me, high fevers in most flus, this one tends to give a low-grade fever, and in fact, 30% of people worldwide do not get fever with it. In addition, it, it also appears to have this propensity toward the nervous system as well as causing sore throat and sometimes nasal congestion and cough. Uh, and so a lot of people just think they have an allergy or their child has this persistent cough that won't go away. But it, um, interestingly enough, if it gets into the nervous system or into the body, it tends to linger quite a bit more than a standard flu, which also sets off a lot of immunological challenges for us with these children. And I think you, uh, after we talked on Monday, I think you were quite aware that once uh, Jake had been challenged by something like an influenza mm-hmm. or other uh, or other agent, because of the immunological challenges, it tends to want to fire up some activity from from past issues like the pandas. And uh, so when we saw that Jake's uh, pandas issues had returned and obviously put him on some uh, zithromycin is what we chose to do for him, but um, uh, then the child starts to improve after a couple of days. But you got to understand that the immune system has to be 
challenged or set into an uh, aggressive attack mode for mm-hmm. those type of things to tend to want to reoccur. And so um, I've really been struggling with uh, the swine flu, and I, I would encourage our listeners that if they have children that are up here to have regressed or are not acting like themselves, in fact, some of these N1 flus through previous papers, even written back as early as 1920, have been affiliated with schizophrenia and psychosis. Yeah, and I will say that one of the first things I noticed two weeks ago before this onset, the rapid onset of the pandas, was that Jake had a pretty up and down emotional, emotional uh, I won't say distress, but he was clearly very upset. You know, he'd go from being pretty happy and then he'd get, he'd kind of bottom out and get really agitated. Mm-hmm. And this went on for a few days, and I kind of shrugged it off like, well, you know, maybe it's the holidays and the overstimulation. But looking back, I really do think there was something going on um, with his immune system. Well, sure, and I'll, I'll tell you, the, the CDC has even had a tough time with this. They've changed their opinion on how we kill this flu um, three times that I'm aware of. Initially, they said you didn't need to treat it. That's just not proper in children with a immune conflict or immune compromise. Uh, then they said Tamiflu alone, and now recently they've really recommended Tamiflu plus amantadine. Mm-hmm. So we've we've struggled with that. We've had to retreat it in a lot of kids, and I just encourage you that we have methods in our office to actually see the involvement of the nervous system. But if you do have a child that um, has gone through some fevers or some flu-like symptoms or is acting really strange, you want to make sure that your doctor considers that, especially in children who have immune systems that are not as uh, healthy as they uh, normally would be. Well, and when you say doctor, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say that this is probably an autism or biomedical doctor because Correct. I don't know that pediatricians are necessarily going to no. understand this, right? Yeah, and I'm making that assumption. Right, though. right. So, um, and you know, we've been on the, uh, or Jake's been on the zithromycin now for three days, and already the ticks have improved and the behaviors have improved, and sure. we're starting to see some just real emerging gains. Like I told you, he said, let's cook it, uh, the Play-Doh animals in the microwave this morning. So, um, you know, we're having some, some good times, too, out of this. So right. I expect in, within another few days that we'll, we'll see some resolution from this. Well, and I, I would tell you we're, um, I'm delighted to have Mary here today, and um, obviously Mary... Um, what most people don't know about me is that I've worked with doctors like Mary for probably um, between six and eight years. Um, was introduced to some developmental and neurooptometrists early on in my uh, career, and um, a lot of the things that I can tell you about sensory integration and our experience has been taught to me through the eyes of the optometrist. And uh, just as in uh, biomedical type of medicine for autism, uh, optometrists sometimes, especially the developmental people, are uh, viewed as outside the box and not quite uh, practicing standard optometry. And certainly your ophthalmologist a lot of times will not understand exactly what's going on. But I think you will find out that the developmental optometrist has a very great grasp on, on understanding of spectrum disorders and all the visual and clearly uh, Hopefully, thanks to uh, a lot of the effort that I've put in some vestibular concepts that have um, uh, come through the education of uh, the developmental optometrist. And really, the, the key thing is that when you deal with the sensory integration disorder of any type, you know, the visual vestibular system, those high-speed, rapid, uh, poor recovering systems uh, in a lot of ways are very, very important to the stability of progress that your child makes. And 
really the vestibular visual uh, disconnect uh, makes it almost impossible for your child to develop in a, a normal fashion. So I'm real excited to hear what Mary has to say. And uh, I know you are. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, uh, this is an area um, that I have really not looked at for Jake. Um, so I'm really excited to hear what you have to say today. Uh, we've done just about every other type of testing on him, but we really haven't looked at um, his visual mm -hmm. uh, development. So uh, with that, I want to introduce Dr. Uh, Mary McBains and uh, read uh, for you um, her uh, very impressive uh, bio here and um, just um, welcome her to our show. So Dr. McMains received her Doctorate of Optometry at Pacific University in Forest Grove, Oregon, and concurrently received her Master of Education in Visual Function and Learning in 2000. She is specially trained in vision-related learning disabilities, pediatric optometry, sports vision, acquired brain injury, strabismus, ambilopia, did I say that right? Ambilopia. Thank you. I struggled with that one. <laughs> uh, developmental delay and vision vestibular disorders. Um, earning recognition for her expertise by being accepted into the Beta Sigma Kappa International Honor Society and receiving the College of Optometrists a Vision Development Award for Excellence in Vision Therapy, Dr. McMains went on to study and earn her fellowship by the College of Optometrists in Vision Development in 2006, board certifying her in vision therapy and vision development. Dr. McMains practiced for seven years in California, relocating to Spring, Texas in 2007 with her husband and two children. She joined the Belair Family Eye Care Team when she was appointed as the clinical director at the Vision Learning Center of Champions. So welcome, Dr. McMaine. Thank you. So we have, uh, we've received several questions from parents today that are um, also very intrigued and excited to hear more about this. And so um, throughout uh, our interview with you, I'd like to actually represent some of those parents and ask questions. One of the things that uh, I, I posted on Facebook, I will say that we were having you as a guest, and one of the, uh, the, the common questions that I received is, okay, how can I get my child tested for all this? This sounds so fascinating. But before we go into that, I'd like for you to really tell us about um, how you evolved into um, this type of work and you know, what were some of your influences in your career. And, um, and just explain for us, if you can, with, the, you know, with relation to the autism community, how you feel that our kids um, have issues that you can help them with. Certainly. Um, I knew I wanted to be an optometrist since I was 12 because my sister was actually in the industry as an optician and that's about the time that I really learned how to wear contact lenses and realized as a woman that it was a great career path. So when I started researching optometry, um, one of the schools had put out a video talking about the specialty practices within optometry, which was the first time I heard about different areas, and uh, ended up shadowing a doctor who um, had a vision therapy practice, and I watched her take um, notably a five-year-old little girl with strabismus. Um, she had an eye turn, um, very introverted, um, was not very verbal, did not like to socialize, did not like to look people in the eye. And by the end of the summer, that little girl was straight and it was an entirely different child. And I said, that's what I want to do. So I chose my, um, my school based on um, a, a school that really specialized in the area and um, found my home at Pacific University. And from there, it's just exploded. I've, I'm standing on the shoulders of many giants in my field. Well, and like Dr. Stewart said earlier, it's not something that's really mainstream. Um, typically, when parents are referred to different doctors, they're not referred to a doctor that's in a, 
that has specialization with our kids' unique issues. Um, you know, if I've, I've actually talked to a lot of parents that have autistic children who have um, suspicious, or their children are uh, suspected of eye problems, and they go to just a regular optometrist. And the, ch the children may get glasses, but they don't necessarily have, um, the doctor doesn't necessarily look at some of the issues that are um, common in our kids. So. From your experience and uh, just the, the amazing work that you've done, what are some of the more common things that are going on with our kids from a visual perspective? Let me kind of address a few of the um, concerns that you have and some of the concerns from the parents. Um, there is a big difference between a primary care optometrist and a person specializing in vision therapy. And primary care optometrists, you can think of them as sort of your family practitioner. Mm -hmm. And what their, their purpose really is is to make sure the eyes are healthy and to make sure that you're seeing clearly. Uh, a developmental or neurooptometrist is really going to look at the function of vision. So we're going to look and, and make sure that that common uh, developmental sequence that should be happening in our, in our, in our children are happening and we're really looking at how the visual um, information is getting into the brain, how it's being processed, stored, and getting it out again, so we're, and how it's integrated with all the other senses. So it's really a different type of um, evaluation that you're going to get. So a lot of the common um, signs and symptoms of vision-related problems are developmental delays. Mm -hmm. um, losing your place when you're reading, when you're a little bit older, uh, rubbing your eyes, turning your head to the side, um, covering up an eye. Um, a lot of, uh, if we're talking about children with ASD, um, looking out of the corner of their eye. We've seen that behavior before. Um, and, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more, but some of the visual stims um, that uh, can occur are because of a, a a disintegration between the central and peripheral visual pathways, or at least that's a, a, a pretty strong um, theory that's going on now, and we're seeing really positive results working in that area. Um, so, uh, when 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 you're thinking about your child, you have to realize that probably about 70 to 85 percent of kids with ASD have a vision problem that is affecting their their development in some way that needs to be addressed. You know, that's interesting um, because we did actually have Jake's eyes checked years ago, and it was from, like you said, a uh, just a family practitioner, the family optometrist, who said, well, he's got 20-20 vision to the best I can determine uh, from the testing that he'll cooperate with, but uh, he didn't mention to us that there would be any vestibular or um, visual developmental problems. Is that just because of his lack of knowledge in that area, or... Um, that we didn't really report any symptoms where he would have referred us out? It, it's really hard to say, but you have to remember that um, a good primary care optometrist is also going to be cognizant of referring to the people that th their, their patient needs. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel that it's my responsibility to really reach out to the primary care optometric community and let them know that we're there and how we can service their patients. But it is the, you know, the parent and the patient's responsibility to let us know what types of issues they're having outside of can they see the board. Because 
2020 vision really means can I see clearly it it really means nothing on how you're using your your visual system well and um, a good analogy that I think that we've seen with Jake is that his hearing uh, we we always suspected that his hearing was um, damaged or um, that he had problems with in one ear or the other and when we tested his hearing with audiologists they always said oh he's got perfect hearing but it wasn't until we came here and uh, Dr. Stewart met with your audiologist or um, Cynthia mm-hmm. and had his hearing um, the actually the auditory stimuli tested and how he's receiving that that we learned that he had a lot of issues in that area yeah I think that um, you know and I can tell you from my learning perspective obviously six to eight years ago when I obviously had a great knowledge of the vestibular system but very poor knowledge at the time of the the visual vestibular interface that's necessary for normal function uh, you realize that uh, I would actually correct Mary a little bit. I think I can do that from my experience to say 75 to 80 percent of these kids is too low. I would think it's probably 95 to 100 percent of these kids that have vision-related problems because if you if you interrupt the sensory integration of the system, you are going to be interrupting the visual function, period. And really, Mary was trying to point out the difference between seeing your family practice doctor versus seeing a neurologist, <laughs> or somebody of neurological specialization, because mm-hmm. really it's what happens behind the eyeball mm-hmm. <laughs> that really are what keeps the eyeball stable and fixed in space and how it reacts to different things. And in general, uh, I think that we also have to remember that um, the visual system as well as the vestibular is all dependent on dopamine. And just like we've talked about in these previous uh, issues, the methylation deficiency uh, creates um, uh, a deficiency or a relative deficiency of dopamine in a lot of these kids. And that doesn't allow not only the movements of the eyes to be proper or the visual vestibular integration, but also drives a hypersensitivity reaction to the system. So if you've got a child that's hypersensitive for hearing, mm-hmm. I will guarantee you they're hypersensitive in their peripheral visual state too. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question and uh, with both of you experts here. Um, Jake has been walking into school the last two weeks with his hands over his eyes. We get to just right at the door, the front door of the school. He's fine, you know, obviously getting out of the car and walking into the school. The minute we open those doors and walk into the school, his hands go over his eyes or his ears. But lately it's been his eyes. Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, to me, I think it was probably related to that uh, mild swine flu episode that he had. Now, Mm -hmm. swine flu targets dopamine uh, dependent nerves. Mm-hmm. So he probably did become very hypersensitive either to his visual stimulation in the peripheral or magnocellular system or uh, or he's become auditory sensitive. But you can't really make one system sensitive and leave the other system alone. They actually react together. Yeah, and I'm really curious about this now because um, just... Well, I think it's know, a good time to go get evaluated by exactly. a developmental optometrist. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, My first question is, um, does he have to walk through the, the cafeteria or is there a particular entryway that he has to go through? The front entrance. And is it is there a lot of people mm-hmm. walking in, a lot of stimulus yep. on the walls? Yeah, yeah always. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be huge overload coming in from the outside world into the inside world, especially if they have the, the uh, budget fluorescent lighting in that area because the flicker from the fluorescent lighting can really overstimulate the peripheral system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's interesting you mentioned that because he, not so much now, but when he was younger, 
We could not go into any large warehouse type store. We could not go into Home Depot. We could not go into um, Costco. Any store that had a wide open space and a lot of fluorescent lighting just uh, really upset him to the point where he'd have to cover his eyes and just would shut down. And now he's out, I'd say he's outgrown it. He probably hasn't, he's just compensated for it. But um, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I never really thought about it. I know fluorescent lights bother me at work, so I can only imagine with a child that has these issues. The, the magno pathway that Dr. Stewart was talking about um, has to do with our where is it system and has a lot to do with our spatial orientation and our spatial awareness. So we need to know where it is before we look at it and find out what it is. It's a faster system. Um, processing speed is estimated to be twice as fast, maybe even three times faster. And when you walk into a store like a Costco, you have several things going on. You have the flicker from the lighting, but you also have the rows of stimulus on mm -hmm. either side that you're walking down. And if there's any trouble with um, determining figure from the ground, um, that's going to also relate to that problem of being able to orient yourself. Okay. Well, so with that, I want to ask you, because um, now, of course, you've opened the door, Dr. Stewart, that we want to come to Houston and, and see your, um, and, and have Jake tested by you. But he doesn't sit still for testing. I mean, we know that from some of our past experience here. And I know from having the, the visual uh, neurosensory testing done on my husband, it takes a while to sit there. So. Do you have any thoughts around, or how have you compensated for these kids that are ADD or autistic and just will not cooperate with your ability <laughs> to measure their their t um, their vision and look at um, some of the testing? Or how do, how do we handle that? Well, the the great thing about um, what I do and why you do want to see a specialist is we have many tools and techniques at our disposal. And sometimes that, that instrument that you see in a regular optometry office, which is called a ferropter, we don't use that with, with certain patients. One, if they can't communicate what they see, then we need to rely more on objective measures. So I can take any child from six months on up and look at all the visual skills and see if they're developing normally. Um, just with the different um, equipment that we have. And it is different equipment, it's not the same. Um, but we always start with, you know, what, what can a child do, not assume that they can't and work from there. So I really look at um, what the child's telling me that they can do. And you mentioned um, before we started the show today, you asked me if we had done any videotaping of Jake um, for specifically we're talking about the tics and the behaviors, but would it be helpful if parents videotape some of the uh, visual stims and then bring the videotape in for you to see if they don't replicate that behavior in the office? Um, I like to embrace all types of information coming in. I have some files that I could rival Dr. Stewart's files because they're very thick. Um, I haven't done it before, but it would be really interesting to have that information. Yeah, um, what's what we find at home is Jake will do some visual stims that in public he may not do because he knows they're maybe not appropriate. Um, for example, when he gets home from school, he loves to get little tiny pieces of yarn or thread, usually out of his clothing or out of the carpet, and play with it and watch the fuzz float to the ground. And then he'll also sometimes look at it out of the corner of his eye. And I don't know if he'd necessarily do that in an office for you, but it certainly is concerning when we see that. Yeah, well, Lisa, I think that doing that is important for the doctor, but it's equally important for the parent. Mm -hmm. 
because having that video file once your child starts to improve and uh, you know you, you classically know that you're with your child every day so you don't notice the improvement a lot mm-hmm. of times as much as when family or friends come around and say wow look at what's happening but it's always good for you to reference back and realize where you've been especially before you go to see your doctor for follow-up so you mm-hmm. can really give an adequate answer and I'm just as bad I mean I can't tell you how my kids developed I mean I really I just I know that they were okay for me and that was fine but you know the, the detail of trying to be a parent is is very hard and that's probably because I'm a man you know when yeah. I pay much more attention to that kind of stuff but you know I think it's good for your for your reference just yeah, like you it, said you were pulling out pictures the other day Right. The pictures tell an amazing story just from looking at his complexion and dark circles under his eyes and looking at um, even his hair wasn't even shiny back then. He had this real coarse, brittle hair. You know, just nutritionally, he looks so much healthier, which I know he is from some of the supplements we're doing. But, um, you know, we haven't done a lot of videotaping on Jake, um, unfortunately. We've taken several photographs, but we haven't done a lot of videotapes. But it is interesting because it's not until sometimes the behavior goes away and you're sitting there and having peace and quiet that you look back and my husband and I said the other day wow we actually sat through a meal at a restaurant mm-hmm. whereas before we've never because for years we weren't able to do that and sometimes it's not to actually get there and then remember what it was like oh yeah back then that you noticed that there's been tremendous recovery and improvement right. um, well so getting back to the testing sorry to keep um, on this topic but I know a lot of parents are concerned about okay how long does the testing take will my child need to be um, sedated in any way will they need to be in the office for more than an hour two hours so can you give um, the parents listening out there some some overall summary as to um, and how invasive the testing is I mean do the children have to wear special equipment or headgear or anything for this to be done good questions um, I can tell you what I do which is a little bit different than the the founder of the Bel Air Family Eye Care but typically when they come to see me, expect to be there for about an hour and a half for that first exam. And um, it's fairly non-invasive or invasive. Yeah. <laughs> and um, They'll be evasive. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think the hardest part is, is, and I usually save this more for the end, is there are some bright lights involved. Mm-hmm. So um, I really try to get to the, to the comfort level of the child before I start introducing those lights. But um, I use a lot of toys, and it's very easy to get a child comfortable. I'm also um, different in the fact that I don't dress up like a doctor, so there's never a white coat. Yeah, um, yeah, Jake is a little <laughs> terrified of white coats, remember? <laughs> but that, that very first visit, we're really looking at um, the visual input skills, so we're looking at the focusing system, eye movement control. Um, we're looking at depth perception and eye teaming abilities. But we're also looking at um, overall sensory development. So in my um, particular examination, I look at something called primitive reflexes um, to really see if if that system is functioning normally. And we get just a quick view of um, their overall general movement, and we're looking at visual motor um, abilities as well. So it's fairly extensive, but because you know they're jumping up and down and hopping and moving around and then putting them back in the chair, um, they tend to make it through. But we do suggest um, with most children to bring them in in the morning so that they are fresh mm-hmm. um, because we are going to tire them out even if they're not coming in tired. Okay. And then after that testing, um, we send them back down to our um, parent office down in Bel Air um, where they do get the neurosensory testing. 
And then we also look at more of the visual information processing side. So we're really looking at visual perception, visual motor integration, visual auditory integration, spatial awareness, just a whole slew of things. So you can expect two and a half to three hours worth of time at that appointment. Okay. Um, and then for our, our practice up in spring, um, it takes us about a week to a week and a half to score everything and we write an extensive report and then we sit down for a parent conference um, to really explain how everything's fitting together and what our recommendations are at that time. You know, this is really good timing for me to hear because Jake has his uh, annual school ARD meeting coming up and I have to clarify, in Texas we say ARD, in most other states it's called IEP, but uh, is his educational goal meeting uh, is coming up in January. And I've looked at the goals and I've thought a lot about some of the things that he still needs to work on. And again, going back to the fact that I really think there's some underlying um, medical problems with Jake. And we haven't tested any of the, the visual development or, or his skills in that. And so my question for you, and this is more of generic for all parents, is uh, once you have these conversations with the parents and you tell them what you found on their children as far as um, any of the abnormalities associated with this system, um, then are you, um, does that, do parents feel fairly comfortable in talking to the school about that or can you assist with getting the education, all the people that work with a child, um, you know, from therapists to the teachers to understand that there's actually a, a medical route to this condition? That is a Pandora's box. Um, one of the reasons why I have my Master of Education is to help bridge the gap between education and our profession. Um, in California, we actually contracted with the schools and were part of the IEP process. Um, the, the schools under the IDA actually paid for vision therapy in certain patients, um, not every patient, because we know monies are few and far between. Mm -hmm. In Texas, um, unfortunately, our profession is, is um, a very small part of the many doctors that are here and we haven't really infiltrated the school systems the way that I'm used to. Mm -hmm. um, so I have attended um, a couple ARD meetings um, recently and I'll tell you it's really dependent on the district whether they embrace what we're saying or not. But I can tell you that um, we do make classroom accommodations. I'm very aggressive in making sure that they're in place either on a 504 plan or through their ARD um, meeting, and I'm getting very proficient in learning the laws of Texas, which <laughs> are very different than most other places. Yeah, thank you. I thought I was alone in that, but uh, we've lived in a few other states, and I can tell you there's been some challenges for us. Uh, Jake's lost some of the therapies that he was um, allowed in other states, like music therapy and some things. We've had to really fight for some of that. But um, That's the only time I've seen vision therapy covered was because it was built into an IEP and because it was, they have to um, accommodate what's in okay. their, I, their plan. Well, you are just a tremendous resource and especially having your master in education is just, um, you don't find that very often with doctors. No offense, Dr. Stewart, but nope. that's just, that just really, <laughs> that really allows you to have perspective with what we as parents um, have to go up against sometimes within the school systems. and. Um, you know, our I was talking to a parent the other day. It just seems like every week it's a battle sometimes. Just not so much that you're fighting with teachers or anything, but that you're just fighting for understanding because um, I still struggle with um, getting my son's digestive enzymes or getting supplements. Um, 
I won't say that they're not doing it because they, they will give them to them, but for them to understand why we do what we do. You know, when I say, well, we're doing vitamin D3 drops, and I get kind of a blank stare, like, why? What? <laughs> so the whole biomedical approach, sometimes I get some really strange looks at school. Or when I tell the teacher that I don't let my child have the Christmas cookies with the red food coloring and the green food coloring, and they say, well, that's just being a kid. I don't understand why you can't, your child can't have this. Does he have an allergy? I said, well, no, it's not really an allergy. It's an intolerance. Anyway, um, I digress, but I am really excited that you have that background, and that really answers some questions for me, um, and I'm hopefully for the other parents as far as how they can um, realize that this this is all related, right? It's it's in children. I'm sure have learning disabilities. You probably see right with dyslexia and other, and that's the ones that I know of that these children are not doing well in school, and there probably is an issue there in a lot of these kids you see, right? Well, one of the, the main things that I've been doing in, in the Houston area is talking to the school nurses about beefing up their vision screenings because, believe it or not, the, the standards that are written down for, for screenings in Texas are wonderful but not necessarily required to do everything that they've actually learned. Um, so most screenings are only looking at the Snellen chart in the distance. But most kids who have a vision problem that's affecting learning typically pass those vision screenings. And they're missing about 51% of the kids that should be um, identified during a screening. And it takes maybe two more minutes per kid to, to be able to address these issues. But the big one for me is attention deficit disorder. Um, there's only three of the signs and symptoms that are listed in the DSM-4, the, the Diagnostic mm -hmm. and Statistical Manual, um, that are not also vision-related problems. So I'm constantly seeing children that are on medication, and vision's never been ruled out as a factor in their signs and symptoms. So I constantly advocate, before you, you decide to, to look into those interventions, really rule out the other areas like sensory issues that could be affecting you know those those um, symptoms coming out in a child well and i think that you know i'd carry it one step forth further is that the sensory deficits are what drives the inattentiveness so it's not the inattentiveness that drives the other way and you know you're exactly right and i, I love the word that you're using is advocate because we have to advocate for these kids as professionals as parents and um, we have to understand that that's that's our purpose i mean we are not dealing with people who in general with educators who um, I won't say that they don't care because I think they do I just think that they don't understand and we have to advocate advocate for other you know parents with other children that have these issues and certainly ours and we have to take a big stance as physicians and and professionals at uh, helping everybody understand well and the more pieces that we pull together in this puzzle the more and going back to your earlier uh, discussion around the coordinated care model. Mm -hmm. it, it just makes you realize that it really does take a team of professionals and the parents need to have that team as part of their arsenal to help them in this journey. They, you know, when early on in Jake's diagnosis, I try to do everything. I try mm -hmm. to be his primary caretaker and the parent and the therapist and the teacher and I was burning myself out at both ends and I was exhausted and I, it would be different if I just had Jake but I had another child. So. You know, when I, I think one of the first things I remember you saying is, let me be the quarterback for a while. And mm -hmm. um, what I'm hearing from you too, Dr. Mains, is you all have the expertise to help us navigate through this journey with 
finding learning disabilities, finding the vision problems, auditory problems, sensory issues, and you can help us um, advocate for these children, and that is really critical. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of experience. Um, we now have a, a, mas a, uh, a Master's of Social Work uh, employee uh, on staff here uh, who's now getting his doctorate in psychology also. And, uh, you know, I can't emphasize if the school is employing social workers uh, as, as uh, assistant or people with social work background to advocate for your children. I think that'd be a good topic or a good, a good point to start with with your child. And I think you'll find out there's a lot more of that in the school system than you think. There's a lot more than I thought. So, you know, it's just a big, the interface between educators and uh, professionals uh, a lot of times can't be handled just by the parent because they don't get any respect. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't mean that ugly, but it just, you know, the credibility's not there. So I'm going to encourage, uh, you know, all the listeners to try to encourage their doctors to be uh, public advocates for, for this, you know, this group of issues. Well, and, and parents really need to have things that are concrete that they can show. Sure. Like you said, they their their credibility is sometimes lessened because they're not they don't have alphabet al alphabetical letters after sure. their name, right? Even if they are a um, you know highly degreed parent, they're seen as the parent when they're right. sitting there at this meeting. Typically outnumbered, there's twelve other people around the table, and sure. they all have their subspecialties. And their job sometimes it seems like is to try to minimize some of these resources because as you stated there's limited resources to go around and they're trying to kind of protect that mm -hmm. and they don't want to and in fairness they don't want to give resources to children that don't necessarily need them when there's other kids that really do um, but I think what I what I'm learning you know through this whole journey and I'm pulling together is I have a lot of different people that I can call at any time and get the information that I need um, to to be an advocate and that's really important right. Well, Mary, why don't you um, cover uh, vision therapy for us? And what do you do? Uh, mm -hmm. When do you need it? Uh, when are you done? Um, <laughs> yeah. How long does it take? Um, how can we help? As, uh, how can the parents help with uh, therapy at home? Mm -hmm. And all the questions that I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with it need to know. Yeah, and, and um, in addition to the therapy questions, I'd also like to know, because I had uh, a parent email me, is, what do you do in the event of children that uh, don't have hearing or that are nonverbal, but probably still have suspected visual problems because they probably can't tell you that they can't see things or that, you know, how do you do their testing as well? Um, let's start with the nonverbal. Um, as before, there, there are many different ways to, um, to look objectively at a child and see what's, what's going on um, and just observation when we ask them to do a task. Um, we can we can glean a lot of information. So there's just specialty tools that we can use. Um, if therapy's warranted and a child's nonverbal, one of my goals is to get that child to be verbal. Because if you can't see something properly, how can you communicate about what you're seeing? Mm -hmm. So there's a big visual component to speech. Um, I I've seen this happen. Um, it's rare, but I can put the right pair of glasses on a child and they'll start speaking and the parent will cry because it's not something that they normally get to see in the doctor's office. So sometimes it's a home run when you can just filter through the noise that they're, they're seeing. Um, after we do our testing, it really gives me a snapshot in time of how a child's functioning visually. 
typically if vision therapy is warranted, which isn't all the time, sometimes it is a proper um, pair of glasses, not so much to see clearly because most of these kids can see clearly. Um, it's really to put the system into balance. So many times it's wearing it during particular activities or um, a big one is using um, something called yoked prisms that change the, the, the perception of the visual space. Um, we use it a lot with um, kids that have vision vestibular issues, um, particularly toe walking because their center of gravity is pitched. And so if we change how they perceive space, it'll change their center. And it's a good way to start as we start in integrating the system. Yeah, um, we had certainly had toe walking in the early years with Jay. Um, so then in answer to Dr. Uh, Minnie's questions on therapy, <laughs> it, are the glasses then one of the primary therapies, the special glasses that they wear? You know, therapy is very individually based. I can't give you a, a, a recipe to follow because every child comes to you differently. And depending on, on the, the development of that child will depend on what therapy intervention is going to be the most effective. Sometimes glasses are the be-all, end-all. Sometimes I can't even use it as one of my tools in my arson, and I really need to get them into the therapy room. Do kid, I'm sorry, do kids with sensory issues where, you know, some kids don't like clothes that have certain fabric, but I just can't imagine my son wearing glasses and not throwing them off his face. So, so do you see that a lot with the kids that just don't want to tolerate anything on their body? Um, it is a factor in what we can use, and if it's something that I can't use, then I try a different method. Contact lenses sometimes are the answer if, I, if, if, if they need to see clearly. But sometimes seeing clearly can actually make their symptoms worse. So seeing clear isn't always better. Hmm. Um, well, you, just you know, kids that are proprioceptively dominant, the ones that are hypersensitive, are failing to adjust to visual dominance. Mm -hmm. And it's either from a vestibular stability issue or from a, a visual compensation issue. But all of a sudden, when you give a lot of these kids visual dominance or the ability to become visually dominant, then their hypersensitivity calms down. Mm -hmm. So, I'll, you know, and I, I've seen that a lot. There are a lot of kids you think, no way is this kid going to ever wear glasses. And they put them on and they never take them off. So that can also happen too. So you never mm -hmm. can't tell. But uh, you got to understand that, you know, unfortunately, the requirements of development are, are time and system specific. And so you've got to take what you can to take to that take that next step. And once you take it, you typically don't uh, go backwards. You know, looking back as I'm talking to you uh, and, and we're hearing all this, I just think of Jake when he was first, uh, well, even before he was diagnosed, he wouldn't trail objects, and he wouldn't. Uh, one of the first things I said to my husband when we, we suspected something was wrong is I said, he's not looking at me. And my husband said, oh, you know, babies don't look at you. I said, yes, they do, and he's not looking at me. And this was about when he was, you know, I'd say a year old. And uh, he had been looking at me prior to that. He'd always look at me, and then he lost eye contact. And that was one of the first things we knew. It was that was, That's one of the first things that told us something was wrong and got us to get some testing for him. So I'm just really curious if some of the visual problems show up first before any of the other issues. I can, I can say without a doubt, yes. There's actually a lot of research going on right now that's showing that we may have some, we might become the first line of detectors for 
um, children with ASD because of the way that um, that eye contact is established. So what they're finding with research is that a, a child with ASD, even before one years of age, will not look at the eyes, but they'll usually look at the forehead because of the contrast between the hair and the skin. Um, and it's the, the patterns of, of um, scanning that they're developing are, are not uh, the, the typical um, pattern that you, that you expect to see. They look more at the mouth rather than the eyes, those types of things. And they're coming up with um, specific tests to look at those, and um, this is something that I just learned in my own my own research in the last month that I'm ordering some of these tests to try them on um, children, the infants that I see, because we see um, we start seeing patients at six months old as one of the screens. yeah, and I think that um, your comment about Jake, uh, Lisa, that you know the classic timing of the development is typically touch and feel is developed at birth just because the nerves that require this myelination to carry the information it's not very detailed so a child can tell if you touch them the day they're born mm -hmm. but then at three months of age we get enough myelination uh, to have the the um, the uh, the eye nerve basically uh, functioning properly and kids will st then typically start to look at you and track a little bit better and then vestibular kicks in about eight to nine months, and that's when Jake should have been looking at you, and I'm sure he was. But he started to, right? Right, and then all of a sudden when you lose that, mm -hmm. then that defines the point when the interruption of the process occurred because it clearly is a, is a stall or an inflammatory, um, toxic, whatever you want to call it, interruption in the development of that child. You just get stalled at that point. Yeah, and Dr. McMains, I don't know if you know our story, but um, at 12 months old, Jake had eight vaccines on one day. And after that, he stared in his face for, it seemed like, months. And he never really stops this, the... Um, the lack of focus after that. I mean, he started to, you know, stop staring, but then he just got really um, almost avoiding, he would avoid eye contact after that. And, um, you know, Dr. Stratton and I have had many discussions about this, about the live viruses and the vaccines with the MMR and varicella. We've looked at various other things and insults, but I truly believe that's when the turning point happened for him was right at 12 months. And that's when he, um, he just seemed like he just stopped looking, you know, he just, it's almost like we weren't there anymore. And so I don't know if you've seen that uh, with kids that had the skill and then lost it. Unfortunately, I see it all the time. Um, I had the great opportunity to work um, or co-manage with the Osteopathic Center for Children in San Diego um, who saw a, quite a bit of seizure disorder and kids on the spectrum. And many of those patients actually were compensated by the government because they were impacted from the vaccines and it was recognized mm -hmm. in that very small window that they did that quietly. Well, sure. And, uh, you know, the, the biggest problem, I think, in in our recommended vaccine program, especially for at-risk kids, and, you know, we've, we've already talked about we have to determine which children are at risk versus mm -hmm. kids that are not at risk, um, is the timing. It's all about timing. I mean, we shouldn't put four live viral vaccines uh, together on one day at the most critical juncture of visual vestibular integration. Now, I don't know why, I can tell you one year of age was chosen completely randomly. <laughs> There's no way that it would have been chosen on purpose. And 
And uh, I would tell you that we need to, as a general rule, re-examine that, okay? Because that, that critical period around one year of age, well, you know, all the way from about nine months all the way through at least 18 to 24 months is really, really important for the integration of all these sensory systems. Sorry, I'm getting on my soapbox a little bit. <laughs> no, we, we get on our soapbox on several <laughs> episodes. But, um, well, and I understand, so I understand uh, your point about how therapy has to be really customized um, for each individual child, and that makes complete sense. But, gosh, I can't help but think <laughs> after we end the show today, I have got to talk to you about getting Jake tested because I look back on the last, gosh, eight years with him, and just so many things now are, are starting to click, you know, just looking at objects out of the corner of his eyes, avoiding um, seeing things in his peripheral vision as we go into stores like Costco, um, doing the stimming, um, losing eye contact, just so many things now are starting to make sense that it's all related to this, this entire system, the vestibular system, and as you said, proprioceptive and right. neuroimmune, it's all tied together. and. Um, Unfortunately, I don't think we necessarily approached Jake's recovery that way in the early years. We approached it by, okay, here we first we see the neurologist, then we see the psychiatrist, then we see the psychologist, then we see the behavioral uh, therapist, and we have all these different people that we saw for Jake's healing and recovery, but they all obviously had their own different map for how they would treat him. And you know, we as parents were getting information from all different angles, but not necessarily, there wasn't really a coordination of all this, is right. what I'm trying to say. It's always an issue. Right. Well, Mary, um, you know, one of the problems that I um, struggle with early on in, in my treatment of these children, you know, five to ten years ago, is um, I thought vision therapy was for the uh, mildly affected spectrum patient. And what you're telling me today is that uh, really, no matter what level they're at, we should be addressing this at the developmental level from an optometry standpoint. Is that correct? I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. So um, tell me about vision therapy or educate the people here about vision therapy and and what does it really entail? Uh, when's the most appropriate time to do it? Okay. And I know the developmental optometrist will spell that out, but... And also tell us the availability of or how widespread is developmental optometry and, and what cities is it in and where can you find it? Well, let me first address, you know, if, if you would like to find a doctor that specializes in vision therapy, I would recommend going to www.covd.org, which is the College of Optometrists and Vision Development website. There's a doctor locator on there where you can put in your zip code and, and find someone near your area. Um, there are associates of the of the COVD. There's also fellows, and fellows um, have gone through a rigorous process to become certified. So I always recommend a fellow over an associate to start. Um, as far as when is it appropriate to do vision therapy? Again, it depends on the child. Sometimes we're doing intervention in office at three years old. Um, there are developmental activities that we can give earlier than that. And the earlier, the better, because if you have developmental issues, you know, you're going to get a lot of different um, uh, areas of function that you have to work on if, if you wait too long. It's just, you know, it just adds onto the pile. Um, typically, vision therapy is anywhere between four months and a year, um, I'd say, as average. Um, children that are very 
um, severely on the spectrum can take longer and sometimes we do it in stages depending on the other interventions that are in play um, kind of take them to a certain level and let them kind of work with that level um, vision therapy is very much like um, occupational therapy um, the, the, the brain is plastic so we are able to get in there and build new synapses to, to um, get the, the systems to function normally and uh, that's what we strive to do. Um, the way our office works therapy is it is more efficacious to come into the office to do um, activities and you still do have to practice activities at home so it is a combination of home and office. Um, though we do have patients that do um, drive from long distances and we, we try to put other things in play one of the questions that we didn't address is, you know, are computer-based programs appropriate? Um, what we found in longitudinal studies on the efficacious of vision therapy is office therapy is better. Okay. Um, so there is um, some change with that, but it's the process that the child goes through that's more important than the outcome. And a child can learn sort of uh, splinter skills or learn an activity and not really generalize that to the way that they function. So do you, does that have to do with um, having a live therapist versus just being in front of a computer? Yes. Okay. Because we're going to be able to, to look at that developmental level and steer them to, the, to what they need to be thinking of and making those changes. And we're teaching the parents to do that at home as well. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, with all therapy, whatever you're dealing with, uh, to me it's, you know, you're creating a habit. You're creating a, a standard of excellence or a point that that child to use as a uh, standard of normalcy and the problem with a, a, a skilled therapist they're never going to let you vary I mean it's kind of like a golf swing to me mm -hmm. there are plenty of, everybody can swing a golf club doesn't mean it looks pretty when they swing it but a therapist will make sure just like a golf coach that you swing it appropriately uh, versus trying to do it yourself at home I don't think you're going to come out as as well even if you have a computer program guiding you so you know, that's just the way I like to think about it, and it actually holds true clinically. Well, that's important that you brought that up because um, there is a lot for parents to choose from, and sometimes we get bombarded by marketing from different um, types of tools that are out there to help our kids. And, you know, we got we our time and money is a very precious resource, so we've got to be real careful in, in what we select to help our kids. Um, so I don't actually have any more questions from parents other than there was one that is always a sticking point, but I'm just going to ask it because I want to be open. Um, is this typically covered under medical insurance, the uh, diagnosis and the therapy? Um, the short answer is it depends on your insurance company. Yeah, um, heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, if it is going to be covered, it will be under your major medical, and it's typically PPO or POS. Um, our particular clinic, um, we don't accept insurance assignment directly, um, but many of our patients do um, receive reimbursement directly to them. Uh, we're considered an out-of-network provider. Our diagnostic testing is covered, and we do bill directly for it, so there's a little bit of a, a dichotomy there. And basically, it's because we don't let the insurance company dictate the care that we give, so we just have battled that and just chose to to give the the quality of care that our patients need mm -hmm. no i understand that and then um do you have a pretty long wait for parents to get in to uh, get their child seen at your clinic 
Well, the benefit of starting a new clinic, the, the spring office opened in June, is that we're a little bit more um, um, open to appointments. Uh, but I'm proud to say that it's getting to the point where we're starting to build a wait list for vision therapy. Mm -hmm. um, that the, the evaluation, there, there's not a big wait time, but the therapy tends to be a little bit longer if you want those prime spots. Okay. Well, um, Dr. Stewart, do you have any more questions or comments? No, I just uh, um, wish I had had this uh, talk with Mary uh, six or eight years ago for me before <laughs> I had to learn all this by myself. Well, I, well, I was going to say the same thing, and um, I wanted to um, also, um, because a lot of parents are listening and they're not reading this, can you, um, can you say your clinic name again and uh, contact information? Yes, um, I'm at Vision Learning Center of Champions, and you can reach us by phone at 832-592-9650, or you can visit us at our website, which is visionlearningcenter.com. And then I wanted to, um, you gave us some excellent quotes that are your favorite quotes. So I wanted to know if you would read those because <laughs> they're just, they're, they just match this program and they're perfect. Uh, we've been updating our website and I've asked all of our staff members to come up with uh, quotes or favorite sayings. And the two that I put were, argue for your limitations and sure enough you'll have them, which is from Richard Bach. Or, grown-ups never understand anything by themselves, and it, it's exhausting for children to have to provide explanations over and over again. <laughs> and that's from The Little Prince. <laughs> Those are great. Well, um, so I'll um, encourage everyone to join us on our next episode, which will be in the new year. And that will be on the topic of viruses, which is really timely because we'll still be in the peak of viral season. And it's one of Dr. Stewart's favorite topics. Um, and with that, I wanted to close and wish everyone um, a blessed Christmas and Happy New Year. And uh, thank you, Dr. McMains, for joining us today. Thank, thank you, Mary. Thank you, Dr. I really Stewart. appreciate it, Mary.